Well, let's take our Bible, look back at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we come to that wonderful section here in 1 John chapter 4 on the love of God. The argument really runs from 1 John 4 verse 7 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 21 in one way or another. It's regarding the love of God and our responsibility to one another. Let me just read a few of those verses to set the tone for us as we dive into the Word of God. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. We'll stop there. I mean, before us is a wonderful passage here on loving one another. In fact, just the word love in some form from 4-7 down through chapter 5 and verse 3 occurs 32 times with different forms, different variations of it. So understand that at least in terms of its theme, we're dealing with the subject of love. Now, throughout this epistle, John has been weaving from the very get-go three tests by which a person can know whether or not they indeed are a child of God. There are doctrinal tests, and certainly we looked at one of those last week on tests of the spirits. You've got to confess Christ. That's one of the areas of the test. These are tests to reveal if we're really truly the sons of God. A doctrinal test. And then we noted, secondly, there's moral test. Moral tests that would demand our allegiance and our obedience as the fruits of the work of God in our life, that namely that man or woman in Christ will be obeying him as the consistent pattern of life. Then thirdly, we're, we've been looking at relational test. And the relational test is our ability to love one another. All of these tests are important. You can't pull one out from the other. You can't just say it's all about doctrine. Or you can't say it's all about love. Uh, you cannot even say that from what we preached on last week, it's only about the person of Christ, though that is so preeminent. And so here, John is going to expand his treatise, if you will, on this relational test, namely on our love for one another. Now, what's interesting with John is he's already taught this twice in his epistle. In chapter 2, in verses 7 through 11, look over there just for a moment, he taught us that we have to love one another. There he said in verse 7, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And the old commandment is the word that you have heard. And so he went to talk about that in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So in chapter 2 and verses 7 through 11, love was a sign of our fellowship with 
God. Look over at chapter 3, though. You remember there, at the end of verse 10, it said, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so there he he hits it a second time. And so as we come into chapter 4, it's his third opportunity, but every time with John, he both expands his argument, then he deepens his argument and drives us to a further truth than what he had stated before, okay? But now as we enter here into 1 John chapter 4, the question that could be asked is why the command to love one another for a third time in this epistle? I mean, why does he do that? Why does he want to circle back and then expand it, deepen it? Why does he do that for a third time? Well, you remember that last week we discussed what it meant to test the spirits. We were to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And I think it's very likely that John now discusses the theme of love again, and he may well do so for balance. Let me just suggest maybe a few reasons why he might do that. Number one, I think you would agree, it is entirely possible to be a stalwart of the truth defend truth with every fiber of your being and be a prideful person all at the same time. And it's just true. You can hold this book, love this book, love the truths of this book, write Bible studies on this book, hold Bible studies every week on this book, and yet at the same time, it's entirely possible to be fully prideful all at the same time. I mean, sometimes... Passion for the truth leads to pride before others. I mean, remember that even John, when the Samaritans refused to listen to Christ, wanted to call fire down out of where? Heaven. I mean, he just wanted Christ to just annihilate them right there for not receiving him. And you have all these other contexts in Scripture. You have somebody, such as in Galatians 6.1, where you've caught somebody in a trespass, it says. But what it says there is very clear. It says that you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of what? Of gentleness. In other words, if you catch somebody in sin, you are to restore them, not with harshness. The spirit there is gentle, each one looking to himself, lest he too be what? Tempted. And so I'm even thinking of the The book of Jude, I mean, just one quick read of that chapter in Jude can kind of just peel the skin, you know, right off you. Just It's so hard when he's talking about those false teachers and black clouds and watery mist, you know, and and who, who the deep darkness has been reserved forever. But then at the very end of Jude, he says this, have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, even the garment stained by their flesh. And so in the midst of that scathing rebuke, to those who are doubting, he says, actually, have mercy. And so it could well be that John rolls right out of test the spirits here so that we have a proper balance as we relate to one another. I'm thinking of the church In Corinthians, you remember in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man involved in immoral sin, and they did nothing. 
And so Paul wrote him a letter and said, listen, you need to tell him that that's not proper and that God will judge him. Well, the Corinthian church went from utter passivity to utter aggressiveness to the point that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and the Corinthian church there was exhorted to forgive the man who had sinned immorally. In fact, punishment by the majority, Paul said, was enough. And so there's always this balance in dealing truth with love. I'm thinking of the Galatian church in chapter 5, where he said that we were called to freedom. He said, but only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He said, but, love, but through love, serve one another. He said there, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you will not be consumed by one another. So it could very well be that as John rolls out of tests the spirits, he's going to bring this relational test back to us. Perhaps John is granting pastoral wisdom that after a very stern call to test the spirits, we do not create an environment and a culture that is without love for one another. That may be. But secondly, I'd say that false teachers and those who do not walk in the spirits leave a tidal wave of emotions, if you will, in their path. Whenever you have false teachers, or whenever you have men or women not spirit-filled teaching things they should not teach, it's often associated in the Scripture with the flesh. In fact, I'm just trying to think back in Romans 1.29, where as Paul gives that category for why God's wrath is spent, it says that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, it says of our own depravity that they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, and gossips. So it could be that John's just saying, listen, we've got to make sure that we're walking in the Spirit. I'm thinking of those who walk in the flesh according to Galatians 5. It says they have idolatry and there's sorcerers, there's enmity, there's strife. There's jealousy, there's fits of anger, there's rivalries, there's dissensions, there's divisions. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians 2.20, he says, I fear that when I come to you, I may find you not as I wish. He said, there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and deceit and disorder. That's 2 Corinthians 12.20. So it may be well that John is seeking to encourage us to manifest the cardinal virtue to love one another in the midst of these false teachers. But I think thirdly, it is likely that John is simply stating a profound theological foundation that forms the basis upon which we are to love one another. For John, the exhortation to love is not only rooted in, I could say, a moral dimension of what we're supposed to do. I, I, you might say, well, hey, I, I am to love one another because that's what a Christian is and does. I understand that. There's truth to that. But for John here, there's a theological dimension as well. And so he deals with, in this passage, the origin of love, namely God's character, that God is the source of love. And so as we approach chapter 4, verse 7, John is going to declare why love is so vital to the life of a believer. 
Why is it that we're to love one another? And John, what he does is reveals the nature and the results of love. And because love really is the very essence of God's nature, love is the signpost of our nature. In other words, we are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. And as such, we share his very nature to love one another. Don't forget that as we walk through this text, that the results of this love, even in our own life, are a further marker of the believer's assurance. So here's how we're going to walk through it in this week, the weeks to come. He's going to state five definitive reasons why believers are to love one another. I mean, that's your calling. That's my calling. That's, that's our duty. But he's going to offer the reason why, though, okay? Why we are to love one another. Not only is it a sign of our fellowship, a sign that we're the children of God, but here it's a sign that we share the very nature of God who is love. The first reason why we are to love one another is this, because God's nature is love. God's nature is love. Look at the text with me in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God... And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you're taking notes, there's two principles that fall under God's nature as love. Number one, the source of love. The source of love. And you'll note how he opens up that verse. Look at it in verse 7. He opens up with that familiar refrain, beloved. There's such warmth by John. Such pastoral concern. I mean, he calls them beloved, and he loves those to whom he writes. In other words, those whom he exhorts to love are the very recipients of his love. I mean, I I was thinking this week, it will be a real joy to meet the Apostle John in heaven. From being the guy that wanted to call fire down out of heaven, then to being referring to himself as the beloved disciple, and to the disciple whom Jesus loved, he will be a neat man to meet. So as he begins this exhortation, he calls them beloved. Now look what he exhorts us to do. Look at verse 7. He says, beloved, let us love one another. And in the language, it is a command here. It's what we call an imperative. And so this is not an option. This is not something you may do. This is not something you can just choose to pass on. You, in the body of Christ at Grace Church of the Valley, are commanded, that's right, to love one another. In fact, just in these short verses, there's three exhortations. Look at verse 7. It says there, let us love one another. Glance down in verse 11. John says again, beloved, if God loved us, verse 11 says, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. Then he says, if we love one another, God abides in us. Now, enough for me to say, what what does it mean to love one another? I'm going to let the text uh, detail that for us as we go, but this is that agape love. You know that. This is the love of sacrificial service. This is what the Bible would call the love of the will. It is the highest form of love. It is a, a noble love. 
And we are commanded to love one another. And again, this definition will be unfolded as we go. What's important for you to recognize is that this command here in verse 7, to love one another, is in the present tense. In other words, he is calling you, he is calling me to repeated acts of loving one another. And again, this is that unselfish love which seeks the welfare of the one being loved. And I think primarily in this text, and I think you would agree, it is a command given to those in the community of the faith. I mean, we understand there's other passages that says, love your enemies. We get that. But here in this context, he's talking about what you do with one another in the body of Christ. That's his concern. But what John is supremely after, though, is to demonstrate the very source of this love, namely, it comes from God. In other words, John is saying that our love for one another arises out of the nature of God's love. In other words, we love one another because, look at the text again, verse 7, where it says, for love is from God. So love here, just as we set the table, is to be pursued in your church, in your home, in our community of believers. It is to be pursued. It is to be lived out profoundly because love is rooted in the very being or nature of God. And so our love for one another is a manifestation then of the life of God in us. It gives evidence that we indeed are sons of God. Now, John states the source of this love. Look at it in verse 7 again. He says there, for love is from God. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, here's the source again, because God is, what? Love. Now, we know, this is John the Apostle, certainly John the Apostle was the one who wrote in John 4, 24, writing about the character of God. Here it says that God is love. You see that we're reading that. John 4, 24 says that God is a spirit. We know from this epistle itself, look back, if you will, in chapter 1, in verse 5, there, John, talking about the character, the nature, the being of God, says this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is what? Light. Okay, so these are attributes. This is not all that God is. It's part of who God is and part of the Scripture. The Scripture reveals who he is. So we understand from John 4.24 that he's spirit, meaning that God doesn't have flesh and blood like we have. Oh, yes, Christ took on flesh, but God the Father is not limited by space. He's not limited by time in the manner in we are. He is spirit. We noted in John 1, 5 that he's light, that he's holy, that he's pure, that he's undefiled. In other words, we're describing the word of God reveals the character of God. And when you read the word of God, you find out who God is. That's the study of his attributes, or some people call that his perfections. And we know that he's holy in the scripture. We know that God is a spirit. We know from 1 John 1, 5 that God is light. And now here, 
the Bible, the Word of God, that precious book that you are holding, reveals to us one of the magnanimous attributes of God. It simply profoundly says that God is love. So here, love finds its origin in God the Father. Now, of course, this does not mean, and be clear on this, love is God, as if every unbeliever who loves does so because of God. No, it actually says God is love, not love is God. But what does love look like? I mean, if I told you that God is love and the Scripture reveal that to be the case, there's many things we can say. And again, the text will push us towards that answer. But I like this phrasing. And maybe you've never heard it before because maybe we've only made it at a human dimension. So maybe it struck me when I read it. But what is, what is love? Speaking of God, he suffers long and is kind. He never loses his patience. He ever seeks ways to help. He knows no envy. And you understand, we're in 1 Corinthians 13. We're exhorted to do this. But don't think if we're exhorted to do this, this isn't part of God who is love. So he, he knows no envy, is not possessive, does not seek to impress us with his wisdom or his power. He is never unseemly, never controlled by his own interest, never selfish. He is never touchy, nor does he keep the score of our faults and failures, nor does he gloat over human wickedness. On the contrary, he rejoices when truth triumphs. He knows no end to his endurance, no end to his trust, no end to his ability to hope, as it were, for the best. He is confident of the certain triumph of his wise and wondrous purposes. Although everything and everyone else fails, he never fails. He is love. That love has become incarnate in the Lord Jesus. But from all eternity and through the fleeting years of time to eternities yet not born, that is what God is, what he has been, and always will be love. So that's who he is. God, when, when you put in your picture a frame, what is God like? Well, he's holy. He's light. He's a spirit. And here, he's love. And you and I are to bear the image of God. And as God's children manifesting his nature, we are to manifest holiness in our life as well as his love. So there's the source of love. It's God. It emanates from God. It's who God is in his being. But secondly, under this first head point, is the results of God's love. And he states it both positively and negatively. Look there in verse 7. He says, and whoever, verse 7, loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, whoever practices love, either toward God or toward one another, reveals their true spiritual identity as born of God. In other words, when you love, this is the means of our assurance, that the child of God, 
who is born of God loves others like God who saved them out of his great love. We begin to take on his character. And when this type of love is practiced, it reveals the experience of the new birth in your life, in my life, at the hand of a sovereign God. In fact, I would say that being born of God precedes that of loving one another. If you ever wonder when people don't love people and don't love one another, don't look externally. It's a great revealer that God has never touched their own heart, that they've never been born again. See, love for one another is the fruit of what has already been established in the roots. And when you and I love one another, it proves that you indeed have been born from above, that you indeed are a child of God. Listen, the children of God do love. You will love. And John is saying here is that God is the source of all love and that the one who loves is by nature connected to him and truly born of him and born again of his spirit. In fact, not only do you love God, but look what he says in verse 7, this other result. He says, has been born of God and what? Knows God. In other words, that man or woman who loves other people with sacrificial love doesn't just know facts about God. He knows God, and you know this. It is a deep, personal, experiential knowledge of God. In fact, one said that as a navigator depends on a compass to help him determine his course. And you might ask, why a compass? Because it shows him, does it not? his directions. And why does a compass point north? Because it is so constituted that it responds to the magnetic field that is part of the earth's makeup. The compass is responsive to the nature, if you will, of the earth. And so too it is with Christian love. The nature of God is love. And a person who knows God and has been born of God will respond to God's nature. And as a compass, naturally, if you will, points north, a true believer will naturally practice love because it is the nature of God. And this love actually will not even be a forced response. It will be a natural response. And so a believer's love for the brethren will be proof of his sonship and proof of his fellowship. You say, but Scott, what happens when people don't love? What happens when people live as a pattern of their life and don't love the body and don't sacrifice for anyone? In fact, as you look at their life, they're selfish to the core of their being. What would you say to those people? Well, John anticipates that question. Look at the text in verse 8. He says there that anyone who does not love does not know what? God, because God is love. I mean, John says, if you don't love, you don't know God. I mean, I don't know a way to make that any clearer. In other words, if you don't love the people of God, then you can't love the God whom you profess. If you say that you love him, but don't love people, then you don't know God in a personal, deep an abiding way. This is not the first time that John has used this phrasing. Look back at chapter 3 in verse 10. He says there, by this it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil. He said, whoever, and in this phrase he says, does not 
practice righteousness is not from God. Nor, verse 10, is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, if you don't practice righteousness, you can't claim to know God that you profess to know. If you don't love one another, you don't love the God whom you profess. In fact, look over at chapter 4. We looked at one of those phrases again last week. Every spirit in 4.3 that does not confess Jesus is not from God, right? So here, as you look down at the text in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. And uh, very, very interesting. And, and here, just so I could be clear, when it says there in verse 8, anyone who does not love, the, the language there is in the present tense. It doesn't mean that you and I have never tripped up. It doesn't mean that you and I have always loved other people. But what John's getting at here is he's describing someone who is unloving in practice, unloving in attitude. They simply do not know God. What do you say? What does that mean? They are not saved. And so I just want to say something to us, and maybe this is the flow of the text. It means that right doctrine in 4, 1 through 6 is not the entire issue. In other words, a right Christology gives way to a right lifestyle with others. And one of the ways you could know that you got your doctrine right is to look at your practice. And John's just so clear here. Now, look at the text again in verse 8. It says, anyone who does not love, that's present tense. But he changes it as he goes on. Anyone who does not love, and then he says, does not know God. And the word for know there is in what we call the aorist tense. And I think for John, he's probably, usually we say past tense, he's going back to the time of their conversion is the thought, their professed conversion. And such a one, John says, without the practice of love, is still a stranger to God. Such a one is not connected to the very source of love. So enough for me to say, if you have people and they claim Christ and they're not part of a local body, they can't be believers. I realize there's times people get physically sick. We understand that people can become discouraged. But listen, if you're a believer, you love one another. If you're a believer, you want to be around one another. In fact, you're trying to find places where you can be around one another. You say, well, if they don't love... It says they do not know God. You say, well, why does he say that? Because of what follows. Look at verse 8. He says there, anyone who does not love does not know God. And here's why. Because God is love. And so for John and the scripture, love is a valid test to authenticate those who claim to truly know God. And anyone who fails to demonstrate love reveals they do not know God no matter what they profess. And so as you're working with people, you have the opportunity to give the gospel to them. But, but forget that for a second. How about just you? How about just for you for the means of assurance? How about you just saying, well, Scott, you know what? I'm not what I should be, 
but I want to be in God's house. I'm not what I should be, but I do orient myself to God's people. Scott, I, I'm, not, I'm not perfect in this sojourn of the Christian life, but you know, I find when I meet believers, I resonate with them, and I get them, and I love them, and I want to love this church, and I want to love this body. Then listen, those are all the signs of assurance for you. And I really believe that what John's trying to show here, he's not trying to preach it the wrong way for the people outside. He's trying to demonstrate to you, if this is your heart, then this becomes an authentic, validating point that you indeed love God. Maybe you're saying as I'm speaking, Scott, I I do love people. I do love... Well, then listen, be assured Stop worrying about your salvation. Stop worrying about what will happen when you stand before God. He writes these things so that you would know. And if this is coming out of your heart and it's been part of your life, then you'll, want it. Then you'll have the sign of assurance. All I know is when God saved me, he did a 180 degree work in my life. Whatever I used to love, all of a sudden I now hate it. And whatever I used to hate, I now used to love. When I was a little boy, I think I've shared this with you, my mom and dad made me go to church and it bugged me because Sunday was for football and they talked too long. And so I'd ride my bike. So as soon as the day was over, I'm out of there. I've got my gear on. We're out in the street. But then I noticed that once God saved me, I was usually the last guy to go. You know, because of this, because of our oneness. And John's just, and this doesn't happen just corporately. Love for one another can happen in the week, but it becomes the disposition of the life of a believer. So when scripture says that God is love, let me just clarify this. It does not in any way invalidate the fact that he's also holy, right? That he's also righteous, All the attributes of God's character belong together so that he is utterly consistent in all things. To know God, then, is to act in a consistent pattern of what God is like. And here, love is from God, and we are exhorted to love one another. Look over in your New Testament there at the book of Ephesians. Can I just show you a few things there? Remember this in Ephesians In other words, it's talking about our position in Christ. He's talking about our relationship to one another. And here's what he would say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, be imitators of who? God, as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so as we're imitators of God, we're to walk in love. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, you could back up to 431. Here's what it can mean practically. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I had a man this week call me, not from our church, and ask me for forgiveness. And I told him I forgave him still hurts, not just something that he did towards me directly. But I have a responsibility to forgive that guy. 
You say, well, maybe it was just words. It might be. Maybe it's all words that he gave me. But he asked me to forgive him. And it says to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ, what? Forgave you. Look at verse 3. If you want to know it, walk in love. Here's what it means from another perspective. That sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And so he exhorts us, does he not, to, to walk in love. You know, I read this week about a large quantity of radioactive material was stolen actually from a hospital. And when the hospital administrator notified the police, he said, please warn the thief that he is carrying death with him and that the radioactive material cannot be successfully hidden. As long as he has it in his possession, it is affecting him disastrously. And likewise, anyone who claims to know God and be in union with him must be personally affected by the relationship. And a Christian ought to become what God is and God is love. And to argue otherwise is to prove that one does not really know God. So here's the first reason we're to love one another. It's because God's nature is love. And the second reason is because God's gift of love. Because God's gift of love. Just look at the text. It says there, after it tells us in 1 John about his nature, it begins to define what love looks like. It says in 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You know, scripture is just incredible, isn't it? Because when you think of God's gift of love, you're saying maybe, what does it look like? Okay, love, sacrifice, the well-being of another, you're you're putting other, what does it look like? Because you know, Love has an intangible quality, does it? Does it not? I mean, you can't touch love. I, I mean, maybe some of you would argue with that. But you can't taste it. You can't smell it. You can't store love in a jar. I was at a guy's house the other day, and he showed me his safe. And inside his safe was guns. And you can keep guns in a safe, but you can't keep love in a safe. Love must be Proved. It must be manifested. It must be demonstrated. And it must be communicated, you would agree, not just in words, but in deeds. And that's what we have in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. 